You're listening to a podcast by Hip Fee Hype, where we discuss new ideas around housing, sustainability, and climate action to explore ways to support the sustainable growth of our cities and regions. I'm Laura Phillips, and I'm the head of urban advocacy at Hip Fee Hype. Hip Fee Hype is an entrepreneurial group of businesses that are working to resolve more sustainable, more socially responsible, and more intuitive solutions to our cities. Spending extended periods of time indoors during the COVID-19 lockdowns has put the performance of our housing into sharp focus. At the same time, extreme weather events are becoming more frequent across the world. How can our housing be better designed and built to withstand increasing heat waves and the impacts of longer, more intense bushfire seasons? Our cities and regions need to support durable, environmentally sustainable housing that is cool in summer, warm in winter, and that generates renewable energy in order to build climate resilience into our communities. Today, I sit down with Claire Parry, Better Buildings Leader Hip Hype, and Sarah Vandermeer, Head of Operations at Hip Hype and Executive Committee Member with Geelong Sustainability, to discuss how we can build and retrofit to create climate resilient housing in Australia at scale. Thank you for joining me, Claire and Sarah. Why do we need our housing to be climate resilient? It's all about the people, actually. So if we're going to be, I guess, tolerating a a rapidly changing climate and a climate that gives us more shocks and stresses on a more regular basis, we we need our homes to to protect us. And it's something that I guess we haven't really been subject to to date. We've we've kind of had it pretty easy, I think. Our climate's been quite mild. The, The shocks that we see are quite irregular, and so we tend to resist them with a lot more ease, but I think, you know, as our, as our climate becomes a little bit more unpredictable, our homes need to start doing more for us. Yeah, I'd have to agree with Claire on that. I guess it's quite um, interesting to have a look at as well at how poorly built our, our stock is currently, and we are not at all ready for the, for the shocks that we are going to be seeing. I mean, there's statistics already showing that more people die in their homes from cold in Australia than in Sweden, for example. So, you know, we really need to start thinking about what that means in terms of, of the shifting climate where we'll see both extremes, the heat and the cold, get, get worse and more intense. Definition of, of climate resilient housing, what, what does that, you know, really, really mean? It means that it, it's something that can withstand you know, th- those, those stresses that occur, you know, if, if our homes are meant to be our haven and our, our safe, our safe place, our safe space. So a home that is resilient would be something that protects us from, you know, whatever's going on outside, outside in the world. And, you know, as that becomes more unpredictable, that what that means to us needs to start to ramp up quite a lot. The definition of climate resilient housing covers a variety of design systems and construction methodologies and can work to reduce the urban heat island effect externally as well as enhance comfort internally, even including elements such as air filtration systems to prevent bushfire smoke. But it can also speak to communities that help each other through extreme weather events and, of course, fire and flood-resistant design, which isn't the focus of this conversation. But does the definition of climate-resilient housing significantly change between urban and regional settings, between freestanding and multi-residential housing? No, no. If we if we just consider that you know people, regardless of um, whether they own or rent a house, regardless of whether it's in the city or in regional areas, the the buildings themselves need to perform in the same way. So, yeah, I guess all of those different 
categories need to be dealt with perhaps in different ways, but materially the homes should really um, fulfil the same function for the humans inside them, yeah. Uh, having been a renter previously and a homeowner now, like obviously we we had the opportunity to upgrade our home, but as a, as a renter you m- much less have that opportunity. And so I guess there's the question around the responsibility of the property owner to provide a, provide a home that is safe. And it, I guess from a resilience perspective, starting to think about, you know, how can we rate our home so that people know what they're getting when they do either buy or rent a home, which again, in Europe, we've seen that that's become a mandatory thing that you have to have an rating on your home and it sort of has to explain what that means. And so when you rent a property, at least you know what you're getting. And so which we don't have here. And so you're often left with a house that is really cold in winter and really hot in summer and there's barely little you can do about it. And so I guess there's a, a, the difference there is the responsibility of the property owner to be able to provide a home that's safe. To your point, Sarah, that's spot on in terms of you know people's awareness about different elements of their home and how that performs and how that actually affects their lived experience to that point i mean how how can our housing be more climate resilient and and what are what are the benefits that people would experience if they are with geelong sustainability for example we've been running a program called um, climate safe rooms where we're supporting vulnerable people in our society to upgrade a room in their home so that that's safe in extreme climate events and obviously recognising that they are the ones that are going to be probably most impacted, the most vulnerable in our society often are the most impacted during extreme weather events. I mean, we've seen that during the bushfires. We see that now during COVID as well. And so working together with the City of Greater Geelong and with the CSIRO to be able to look what the impact of that can be over the long term. So we've installed some monitoring to sort of track that. Obviously, COVID's made that we can't do the installs, but it means we will have a lot of data in the lead up to sort of look how how these homes are actually performing now, which will be really interesting data that we wouldn't have had if COVID hadn't have happened. So from that perspective, that's very helpful. And I guess the benefits, you know, our governments often talk about, you know, the need to reduce bills and that we, we're paying a lot for electricity and they want to reduce our electricity bills and, and our gas bills because a lot of people still have gas in their homes. But essentially the best way to do that is to upgrade the place that they're living so that they don't need to use that heater as much or the air conditioning as much and still feel very comfortable in their homes. You know, when we bought our house, we had we had a, the orig, original energy rating was pretty much it came back that we were living in a tent. And that's pretty much the average average stock of housing in in Geelong, at least, because they're all there's a lot of very old houses. Ours was built in 1940, so at least we had the opportunity to to make changes to that. And you know, we've built the extension in a way that's really comfortable. And and we notice even having done upgrades in the front weatherboard section, like the back part where we've built new, you can really notice a really big difference in terms of how well it's sealed and and so from a comfort perspective it's much much better than even the upgraded part of the of the old weatherboard house like many in 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 melbourne and australia have experienced years of, of very poorly insulated housing through through various rental tenures and now having the privilege of being in a 
uh, a well-insulated apartment in my case, it's it's a completely different experience and has a, a real material effect on my physical and mental health. Yeah, I mean, I, I spent a long time in rental homes too and it was, it was always quite... I, I don't know. I I was wasn't actually surprised. Like you kind of just get what you're given. You, you know, you get what you get. <laughs> and I've lived in quite large homes where the only heater was probably one home in particular was a was a three a three bar gas burner in the lounge room, and two of those were broken. So we had one. So if you were really cold, you just had to stand right next to it. And it was <laughs> thinking back, I'm like, why did I accept that? But perhaps I didn't know any better. You know, um, perhaps I didn't. I thought, you know, this isn't my home. There's nothing I can do about that. I, I rent it. I don't have the opportunity to do anything about that. But I guess if we think about how our housing can be climate resilient, if we think about other stresses that we have in our environment, you know, we've been designing, perhaps not in Melbourne, but in a lot of other parts of the world, we design buildings to cope with earthquakes, you know. Like if, if we can design a building to be that resilient to that extreme shock of, you know, the earth moving, why can't we design for something like, you know, a, a bit of heat or, a, you know, a, a cold experience. So, you know, we need to ensure that we now consider things like material durability in the face of dust storms, bushfire smoke, the systems that we now have to put in place to deal with all of those shocks and stresses. We have to consider homes that that cope with a few different, you know, there's a, there's a system of measures that we need to put in place to deal with quite a complex and changing environment. But I don't, I don't see it as that complicated, actually. The thermal stresses, so the climate stresses that we're talking about potentially as you know, most front of mind being too hot or too cold, they're the most simple and we should be able to get those right, actually. From a, a rental perspective, it has a, a huge impact into the amount of people that, that are in private and, and public housing rentals across Australia. And there's definitely, as, as to Sarah's point, a number of retrofitting measures that can be applied to those housing it's it's not a case of demolishing and rebuilding at all there's a huge amount of interventions we can make to just in, improve the quality of our housing stock across the board change often does require both a carrot and, and a bit of a stick approach what are the biggest regulatory and policy challenges to broad scale retrofit upgrades that you see i suppose it's both a higher standard of new builds and how and how we can through those measures overcome the challenges of transitioning to climate resilient housing you know across the board yeah this is a complicated question and it's really hard to know where to start and it'd be nice to think that if someone just changed a rule that we'd all get on with it but in many ways it isn't as simple as changing the regulatory settings I'd love it for that to be the case but I think if we see regulation potentially move faster than industry is ready to deliver we see a lot of mistakes happen and I guess a great example of that is in Europe I think it was the mid-90s, they started to require that buildings were made airtight. But they didn't quite catch up on the science behind vapour transfer and ventilation. And so they had a lot of sick building syndrome. And obviously that, you know, you can be too hot or too cold, fine. But, you know, if you've got mould and other sort of air quality related issues, that the impact on your health from those is quite dramatic as well. So we, we have a building industry that in many ways isn't ready. It's not to say we can't get there, but in a lot of ways there are parties in the industry and quite loud stakeholders who are a bit resistant to deliver the product we need. Then you've also, at the client side, you've got consumers who don't really know what it's like to live in a great house. They don't really know that what they're living in isn't up to scratch. I think it's actually, I've been one of the silver linings of 
and I, I don't want to make this too much of a positive, but, you know, one of the silver linings of everyone being thrust into their homes and working from home in the last few months is that we're sort of sitting there now day in, day out going, this isn't that great. <laughs> Whereas before we were ha- perhaps home a few hours every night and a little bit on the weekends and we could come and go. And now we're stuck. We're looking at our homes and starting to reassess them. But I, yeah, I guess, so in that sense, one of the biggest mo- biggest challenges at the moment is motivation and inertia and then education and all of that kind of has to move a little bit at once or we need a big a big reason for pressure to be put on that sector to move it along a challenge is not so much the new builds I think there's there's big opportunity and we're starting to see definitely see a shift in in the new builds already I mean there's still a, sh- a huge shift that needs to happen but it's it's much easier to make that transition the bigger concern I think is the how we make sure that our existing stock which is most of our stock including what's been built over the last you know 10 10 to 20 years since they introduced some sort of requirements for for new builds around energy efficiency but even they don't perform well enough and so i guess it's the question how do we how are we able to upgrade all of that to make sure that all the people that already have a home are comfortable and safe in those homes and i think that's probably that's probably the biggest challenge and i think the only way that we're going to see things shift is to that the government's at all levels need to need to support that transition and need to start they need to they first of all need to understand what what needs to transition because i think there's a, potentially a little bit of a, a knowledge gap there because it's still a lot of around oh we'll just put solar on everyone's roofs and that will solve the problem that's not the case that doesn't make someone comfortable in their home or safe from a climate event so it's really about understanding what needs to change in these homes i mean there was a few years ago, one of the, in the public housing sector, they did a massive amount of upgrades to a bunch of their their stock around air tightness and making sure all the draft proofing. And people were actually, as Claire mentioned, getting sick in their homes. And the issue was that they'd sealed these homes really well, which is great, but they hadn't upgraded the heaters that actually require ventilation because the older gas heaters need ventilation and so people were actually getting sick and poisoned by their heaters and so I guess there's that that we need to understand the whole picture of what needs to change in the house it's not just about draft proofing or putting solar on someone's roof that's going to solve it like it's a really complex amount of things that need to change and and thinking about that whole picture of what a home what is in a home and what that does is really important health is such a critical one because obviously there's so many benefits just in terms of quality of life as we've touched on the whole energy efficiency and its impact on carbon emissions is is a whole nother one but that health impact is is so significant and that obviously kind of has has impact in terms of where we're kind of placing investment goes beyond that invest in, in climate resilient housing that can decrease the health costs that you're spending elsewhere as well as obviously kind of costs in terms of how people are operating their homes as well. So it's innumerable benefits. So I suppose to to that point, do you think a kind of a program of case-by-case assessment is required because it's often quite nuanced 
appraisal of, of, of house by house. Yeah, I think that there's a great program out at the moment from the Victorian government, the Victorian Energy Efficiency Scorecard, uh, which does go into looking at existing homes and giving you an assessment of, you know, ba- based on some of the measures that we can see, readily see, um, things like insulation and ventilation and perhaps operability of certain systems. What, you know, what is what is the outcome? What have you got? What are you looking at? So it gives you an as-built, you know, existing building rating. However, I'm not a great fan of checklists because they often, you know, think, things don't work in isolation. Having, having operable windows, fabulous. But if you don't open them, you know, no, great, no good. If you have insulation, that can at times actually cause mold on walls because ventilation is and you know we've talked a little bit about air tightness too but it's the system of a building and then in a lot of ways I do get a little bit frustrated about this idea that we need to we need more research because I don't actually think we do I think building physics is really really well established knowing knowing what to do and what what retrofit measures you know knowing how to identify what might be underperforming in a particular building that's actually pretty well established. And then also the solutions, you know, these exist. They might not exist in Australia, but they, they exist. And yeah, I, I'd, I'd like us to get out of the research and, and benchmarking and, and policy setting exercise and just sort of get stuck in, to be honest. Yeah. We know what needs to change. I just sometimes question about whether whether our governments know what needs to change because um, we, I think we all, and this happens everywhere, doesn't matter where you are, we get stuck in that trap of, oh, but does it apply to, the, to our local context? And it, the answer is yes. We don't need to re-research it and, and make sure that it actually works because we have the solutions that work. One key thing that we've noticed with the Climate Safe Rooms program here in Geelong is that there's actually no one who can do the upgrades. So there's probably people that can do it, but there's no one who is willing to do the work. No one wants to be crawling under under a house, you know, with 50 centimetre clearance, putting insulation in. It's a really horrible job. We've done it. We did it ourselves. It's not a fun job. And I think the V-Res system is a, is a good starting point, but I think there's no there's no one to do that. To do it's still a really small market of people that can actually do the upgrade work, and that's our biggest barrier in in Geelong. Like we with Geelong Sustainability, we offer V-Res assessments, and we have lots of people that are really keen to do these assessments on their houses. And even in a remote setting, like we, we've been offering them sort of the, a virtual V-Res assessment, which is much more challenging because it's really helpful for an assessor to be able to go into a home. But under the current situation, we weren't able to. But then they come back to us and they're like, okay, well, you, you know, we need to upgrade our insulation and we need to draft proof and all this sort of stuff. Who can we get to do that work? Because not everyone wants to do it themselves. But that is the question we don't necessarily have an answer for and that's very frustrating because you know we can tell people what needs to change and we know what needs to change in people's homes but who's going to do the work is the next problem and obviously we don't want to get into a situation where you know where the Labor government was some time ago with the pink back scheme it needs to be done properly and there needs to be accountability for that and the people doing the work need to be trained to do the work registered builder 
is not necessarily going to be interested in doing that work. And so whether there needs to be programs through TAFE or through whatever it is to be able to support that, to be able to do those upgrades is an essential part of it because otherwise you can have all these systems in place to tell people what needs to be done, but if the work can't actually be completed, there's no point. Mm, absolutely, I'd agree. And I, I hear a lot that people have all these best intentions but finding somebody to actually do it becomes the next biggest challenge and they might be waiting. As you say, they might be they might be approaching a builder to do this work, but then they have to wait so long. Yeah. And then, then I think we've got the, this extra issue of who's going to fund this stuff because it doesn't always pay back. You know, qualitative performance of our homes like comfort and health, you know, unfortunately, when people can't see this monetary benefit, even if it might be in the resale of these properties, it, it's very hard to justify actually undertaking the work. Yeah, you might, if, you, if you're saving $20 a month for a $50,000 investment, it's kind of like... What's the point? <laughs> but, you know, you, you, yeah, unfortunately, I, I, I would put a lot of a, a bigger price tag on my health and well-being. But, you know, and something Sarah touched on uh, earlier in the in the chat was that the people who are being hit first and worst by these climate impacts um, just do not have the funding to be able to do this work. They, they might be living in rentals. It might be social housing. You know, they're, they're scrounging to pay their food and electricity bills and rent, let alone put in more insulation and uh, undertake air tightness or glazing upgrades. So there's, there's quite a systemic consideration that we need to undertake and it will take government intervention, government funding. Unfortunately, I can't see it happening in a hurry, but it's, it's all possible. Technically, we know the answer. It's, it is often the most vulnerable households that, that experience or at the front line of, of kind of climate effects and experiencing the, the detrimental impacts of that. Even just this morning, I saw an event coming through, through from Ahuri of saying 40% of Australian households uh, in renting households are experiencing energy hardship, both from rising energy costs, but large stock of poor quality and energy inefficient housing. Obviously, supporting those households would be critical. So I think from our conversation, it's it's clear that there's a big part that needs to be played in education, both from a consumer public level and and industry level to kind of get the skill set and capacity building up to perform the energy efficiency works required to get to a point where we can have broad scale climate resilient housing and that's going to also require you know a lot of collaboration between the private sector and government to make sure that those initiatives are kind of you know rolled out in an effective and and safe way 